0: When you work with your body and not against it, you'll begin
1: to discover that you are in fact designed to heal. So I want to welcome everybody to another episode of Design to Heal. Uh, Dr. Ben, I'm really excited for today because uh, this is a buddy of mine that we've yes. got as a guest that uh, I've known for a couple years now, that just uh, one of our heroes and doing some amazing, amazing work with veterans. And so um, probably because we're going to tell his story today, yeah. he's going to tell his story, probably should put some kind of trigger warning out there, maybe for the younger ones or something. Yeah. But, um, you know, this is something that people need to hear. And so today we're going to talk about trauma because the show is Designed to Heal. We're going to talk about how the brain is a part of that, and the brain can heal. And the brain can heal from trauma. And there are some people even listening to that statement right now, going, "What? What are you talking about?" So, with that said, Dan Jarvis, welcome to uh, Design to Heal. It's good to have you, man.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, you know, I, your your name
0: has come up so many times. Always good, right? Um, but people said, "Hey, you really need to meet. You need to meet Dan. You need to. He's helping people. You guys are aligned in this." And, and I take that as a it was a compliment, to, you know, because when I was hearing the things about you and the amazing work you were doing. Especially in an in an area that is often taboo, or right, or feels like you can't talk about, even though it makes the news, right? But when you really start talking about people getting well, people healing, people, you know, doing different things, it's amazing the kickback you can get, right? And and one of the things I've loved, you've done this for the you know a couple of years that you guys have known each other, and you're going to share your story, is you've continued to fight the fight, right, for people. I see people in this world that they get kicked so much, right, that they just say, you know, screw it, right? Yeah. I, whatever, I'm going to do my thing. I'm out of here because I'm trying to help people, but it's, you know, right, you guys, and I've just appreciated, if anything, you just keep up, <laughs> up in the game, right, because probably because of what you've experienced and the victories that, you know, people can have. So it's an honor to have you here, number one, as a veteran, but also the way you're helping people. But I think there's people that are going to hear your story today and hear what your, your experience and expertise and, and that didn't have hope and whether it's them, it's their uncle, it's their brother, right, or it's their, or it's them, right, and they're going to for maybe the first time today realize, I can actually heal from trauma, right? So that was a long. That was just my little interjection because I want to hear the story and get into this. But
1: so, sure. so tell the listener how you got into the service for starters, and uh, and then what your kind of journey with trauma was, if you don't mind.
2: So I, I initially enlisted in the United States Army in 1988. Um, yep, I'm just turning just turned fifty, so I'm a little bit up there. And my father was a career Navy. He did 22 years in the United States Navy. And the, the order coming out of high school was you got two choices. I don't have money for college. You can either join the military or you can start paying rent when you graduate. Well, I sure didn't want to pay rent at home. <laughs> so I figured I'd show my dad and I went down and talked to an army recruiter and had to bring the army recruiter to the house. And he took it a whole lot better than I had hoped. Hmm. I thought he would be like, why are you talking to Army, not Navy? Oh, gotcha. <laughs> so anyways, um, I was 17, so I was young. I was a kid, and I had to have both parents sign permission for me to join the Army, and my dad was just as nice as he could be the recruiter, and signed the paper, and my mom was literally bawling. Mm-hmm. She's like, I don't want him to join the Army. He can get hurt, and I could still hear the voice of my dad today. Shut up, Bonnie, and sign the damn paper, <laughs> You know, and that was it. Sign the paper, and like four or five, six weeks later, I was on a bus, and then I headed up to Fort Benning, Georgia, and... You know, I joined the United States Army. I wanted to do the toughest job I could possibly find. And that was infantry and uh, went on that kind of that journey. And, you know, I only did like a two-year enlistment, my first go-round. And I actually got out of the Army literally two days before Saddam invaded Kuwait. So August 2nd, Saddam goes into Kuwait. And like July 30th or 31st, I was out of the Army. And I was like, dang, that was close, you know. And then in January, I get a, a Western Union mailgram says you were hereby recalled to active duty. Wow. You had report to report Fort Benning, blah blah blah. And then that was very short lived. The war was over. I, I literally went to Fort Benning to Hawaii, and then six weeks later, I'm back in Florida, and went to college. I graduated, and then went into law enforcement. I worked for a sheriff's office in Central Florida, and then you know 9/11 happens, and that kind of mm-hmm. changed everything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, um, wow, now what? You know, we are at war. And then I didn't decide until 2004 to go back on active duty, and it was after watching the the, the second invasion into Iraq that I realized, man, I'm, I missed that opportunity the first time. They're desperate for people to sign up, so I went I went and talked to an army recruiter. I was like, I'm 34 years old. Is there any way I could go back in? And they're like, Absolutely, huh. you know. And and literally shortly after that, I was back going back through basic training all over again. Huh. So I'm like 34 years old with. 18, 19 year old kids and just hating life. It's like, man, I wanted to just smack some of them. And then I found myself in Hawaii, uh, 25th infantry and the unit was deployed to Afghanistan when I got there. And shortly after they got back, they had 12 months dwell time, they call, and they went right to Iraq after that. So I got to go to Iraq as a Sergeant. I'd got promoted pretty quickly uh, just because of age and level of responsibility. And find myself in the middle of a war zone at, you know, at that time I was like 35, 36 years old and was like, wow. You know, I remember getting off the airplane in Kuwait and it was literally August 6th and it was 145 degrees out. And there was literally, literally in a 10 mile an hour wind. So I'm like, wow. And then that began that journey and and that ended up being a 15 month deployment. It was a pretty Mm -hmm. kinetic fight for us. I mean, we had um, IEDs. We had indirect fire. We had direct contact. You know, machine gun fire. You know, you name it. We were experiencing it. Uh, was even involved with a what they call a complex attack. And at, at, to date, that was like the largest uh, vehicle-borne IED to uh-huh. date. Where, you know, we got intel that we were going to get attacked by a garbage truck full of of homemade explosives, which is ammonium nitrate. And then, literally, like a day later, we had indirect mortar fire coming in, RPG fire, machine gun fire. And we're in like a pretty complex situation and, and we're in a house, right? So there's a platoon in a house mm-hmm. and 360 degrees. We were engaging the enemy and they were engaging us. And, and I remember sitting there watching the mortars come in and walking into the vehicle. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm outside. I'm in a, I'm in a, what they call a crow truck, which is a, a Humvee with a 50 cal mounted on top with a, a, a camera inside and a joystick, so I'm sitting there with my gunner, and I'm watching these rounds coming in. And those Humvees have armor on the sides, have nothing on the top. I'm like, man, if we get a direct hit, we're done, ski. And you know, it was that was a pretty complex attack. We had Kyle warriors coming in, engaging 50 cal from air support, um, you know, rockets on targets, and then we had this dump truck coming in the back of the compound, and it was kind of our open open side. It was facing towards our main Fob uh, fob McHenry on Route Trans Am, and one of the uh, machine gunners that was up on the top, um, you know, he was just an amazing young man, um, called out the target, and he shifted, and he's engaging it with an M240 machine gun. Meanwhile, they say rounds are exploding around the sandbag, so they're targeting him because he's on the target. And, you know, luckily they, they stopped it. The vehicle ended up hitting the berm and um, didn't detonate, thankfully. Mm. And... The final when the whole battle was over and EOD came out, there was 1,600 pounds of homemade explosives in the back, and it was full of gravel, and had about 400 pounds of propane. So, had that thing detonated, it would have been a giant Claymore, and we were just we were fortunate. And when when EOD was destroying the the ordnance, they had to do it in like three separate. Um, events because it was so you got to realize 500 pounds brought down the Murrow federal building mm, in mm, Oklahoma. Mm. So you're talking 1600 pounds and they've had to date, you know, they've had a couple bigger ones that were catastrophic. I know like the 82nd airborne got hit with a, a vehicle born IED that was bigger than that. And it took out like an entire platoon. Had that thing hit us, there would have been nobody left. Nothing would have been left. The building there would have been, you know, it would have been vapor. So that's kind of how that deployment went. And then we ended up getting extended. So we ended up in Iraq for 15 months and, You know, we lost 17 Americans and one interpreter for our battalion in that time span. And, you know, then I go straight from there back to the civilian. Well, not civilian. I go back to um, Hawaii, and I re-enlisted to stay with my unit because they're going back to Iraq another turn and burn a year later. And then I came down on orders for drill sergeant duty, and I was DA select as a drill sergeant out of Fort Knox. So I did that for two years. And then immediately after that was done, you know I'm, I'm heading to alaska to a unit that's deploying to afghanistan so um literally had like four weeks in alaska and then no train up time with my guys and now i'm in afghanistan so that was a very you know quick four four and a half five years and you know afghanistan was different you know we had different rules of engagement you know when we were you know when we went outside the wire in afghanistan no crew served weapons could have rounds locked and loaded so I'm in a lead striker. We have a Mark 19, which is automatic grenade launcher. And we're told that we can't have rounds loaded because that's how the rules of engagement were between the two different, um, command structures and administrations, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, of course we were like, uh, lock and load. (laughs) And if, if that thing goes off your next words out of your mouth better be contact, right? Right let everybody have a little bit of fun, and then you and I are going to take care of it. And that was kind of like the rule of thumb. So if, if my old PL is listening to this, um, sorry, sir. But
0: What's, <laughs> the, what's the old saying? Uh, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission sometimes. Yes, you know, absolutely. Uh, at least you be alive or a shot at it. Yep.
2: <coughs> and, and so anyways, I go through Afghanistan's deployment it, much less kinetic than Iraq was. Iraq was a direct engagement oh. fight. Whereas Afghanistan, you didn't know who you were fighting. I mean, we had... A lot of indirect fire coming in, which was, you know, for the guys that we had attacking us, they, their weapon of choice was an 82 millimeter recoilless rifle, which is an anti armor weapon. It's designed for direct fire, but they would fire it in an indirect mode and they were lethally accurate. Like Uh literally the first time we got hit in Afghanistan, we're having a a meeting with leadership and I hear this noise in the distance and it was, you know, you talk about trigger. I heard it in the distance and I'm like, we're about to take contact. I'm telling that to the the leadership. And they're looking at me. You're crazy. And literally 15 seconds later, a round impacts and explodes, maybe 20 meters from where we were. And it was next to a, one of the tents that was occupied. But we call it a Joe tent. That's what our soldiers were were staying in. And then all of a sudden, the word came out. You know, we have contact. Yeah, you know, we have we've contact the enemy. We got we got casualties. So, mm-hmm. myself, platoon sergeant, and another squad leader, we're moving to get next door because that's where we knew the casualties were. And as we're about to go into that tent. To start addressing the casualties uh, an rpg round air burst directly over top of us and it was like a bright light and then the concussive force and all of a sudden we're all three on the ground we're like how the heck that happened so we get up and then we ended up uh had to medevac two casualties back to the aid station which luckily was in the one tent over from we we didn't have to get him too far, and then the docs worked on him. We we were very blessed. We had a, a surgeon attached to our our company, and which is unusual. Usually, a, a surgeon is attached to like a battalion level or higher. And so, Doc Greenberg was simply amazing. He 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 literally saved everybody that got to him that was alive. He sent out on a bird, and they all survived. Uh. So for us, that was extremely lucky, you know. And then in that deployment, um, we were. We did a lot of missions with our Afghan counterparts. So we, we would, you know, do patrols with them and, and we were trying to do everything we could to teach them how to become better soldiers so that we could eventually leave their country. And we ended up doing a mission with the Afghan police and it was they, they don't eat our MREs because they're not kosher. Mm-hmm. So we were doing a four-day operation. We were up on the top of a mountain between two villages. Uh, They called it patterns of life. We're just doing surveillance on the two villages to determine what the patterns of life were. And I I told my lieutenant, sir, I could save you four days. It sucks, you Uh, know. uh, uh, And (laughs) so the first day we get there, I mean, we're literally climbing mountains with 100 pounds of gear just to get set up on the top. My element was watching one village and the lieutenant was on the other side of the mountain watching the other village. And we regrouped. Uh, It was probably about one o'clock in the morning. And I remember hearing machine gun fire off in the distance. I'm like, oh, great. You know, Because I had to walk across uh, back across the Tarnak River uh, with a small element of Americans and a small element of the Afghans. So I had four of us, and I had four of them and one interpreter. And it's the first mission we'd ever had. It was a brand-new interpreter. And as we were getting ready to come across the river, um, I stepped on a pressure plate, which detonated an IED that was literally 5, 10 feet away. All, it was a, like a, a fireball going up into the sky, and then you feel that the, it's kind of hard to explain the the pressure and you know just the dirt. Luckily, it was just it was homemade explosives, so there wasn't like shrapnel. It wasn't oh. like an artillery round. And man, I'll tell you what, I had my bell rung, and so we ended up pushing out. We got to a point where we set up security. You know, my radio when I hit the ground, the antenna broke off of it, so I could hear transmissions coming in, but I couldn't I couldn't get transmissions out. And then my the Ford observer I had, which is a you know the guys that do call in for artillery and whatnot, brought a short whip antenna into the mountains. You've gotten like no, um, there's no bandwidth in them. So we couldn't call. I was trying to call up and tell them to stay up. You know, I didn't want them to come back because you don't know. There's probably secondaries or, you know, a follow on ambush, whatever. And they ended up coming down and they found us. We just halt security because I was trying to lead the patrol. And you're talking about dizzy and, incoherent and not trying to figure out, I, I was just worried about keeping my guys safe. So we just set in security and we just stayed put because we knew they would eventually find us. And they came in, they, the, the guys came off the mountain, left a very small contingent on top of the mountain and was able to escort us back to the, uh, the vehicles. Uh, we weren't that far. We only had about 7, 800 meters to go, but you know, it's in, you know, pretty, it wasn't like open desert terrain that you could see, but it was in an area along the river, so there's a lot of wooded areas and, you know, vegetation. And I was trying to read a GPS, and I'm trying to walk a straight line. And I'm, I'm literally veering and falling over. You know, you get that, you know, a brain injury. It's it's kind of hard to feel sorry for a lot of these NFL players because, you know, my my overpressure was probably 50 pounds of, of ammonium nitrate. And so we got back to the, and I'm, I got to a point where I was like dry heaving, and but I had no food in me, so I, I couldn't couldn't vomit. And, um, the Lieutenant was like, Hey, uh, all right, you guys go back to the vehicles. We're going to go back up the mountains, get their food. I'm like, sir. I said, we have no communications. And I can't even tell you what day of the week it is. And then, so the medic that they brought with them checked everybody out and everybody that was on that patrol had symptoms of TBI. So the, the medic says, sir, I'm going to call it. These guys can't go. We need a medevac. And then we tried to medevac, but we were in an area that had very low priorities. So, Um, We couldn't get in a helicopter to medevac, so they had to cazavac us. And and I just remember just so many, so surreal, trying to literally walk a straight line. It's funny because my lieutenant and I were talking, and he was like, what the heck are you saying? He's like, I wasn't making any sense, and I thought I was making perfect sense. And then I kind of got taken off the battle roster for about seven days after that, and I'm sitting there begging uh, the the doc the you know Major Greenberg I said, Sir, I, I want to get back out with my like, guys I want to get back out with my like, guys my guys are out there without me and you know he was like Sergeant Jarvis you're not going out that's an order uh, he said if you go back out and you have another exposure to a blast injury it could kill you so I was like okay not gonna argue with that all right and then you know finally got to the point where I got back on the battle roster I'm doing missions but I'm not sleeping I could not sleep to save my life literally the first two or three nights that I actually closed my eyes. I would hear the explosion and I'm up first couple of times I'm, I'm grabbing my gear cause I think we're taking contact. And then when I realized nobody's moving, I'm like, Whoa, okay, something's wrong. But as a leader, you don't want to say, Hey, I, I got a problem here. And it wasn't until three weeks later that, you know, you, you want to talk about a gut punch. It was August 19th and we were escorting an EOD element. That's the explosives guys. One of the other platoons found an IED up on a mountain. It was a uh, it was designed for dismounted patrols. So we go off route on Route Snake. It's a black route, which means it's not been cleared. So my job on the front is in the striker is to safeguard the convoy. So we have this big huge mine roller on the front, so it puts pressure weight down in front of the striker, so that it would detonate a um, IED before the vehicle actually got to it. And and I, I remember you know we went through this little ditch. And we came up the other side, and I'm like, whew, we're still amongst the living guys. And the driver, Ryan, was like, that's messed up, Sergeant Jarvis. Like, I'm sorry, bad humor. And then we start pushing out further, and then I hear an explosion behind me. And I look back, and it was our main gun system. It's a striker unit with a 105 howitzer, so it looks like a tank. And that was the day we lost Cordo, And that was kind of like – Self-hatred kind of really kicked in after that. You know, you're talking about survivor's guilt, but beyond that is responsibility. You know, I was supposed to stop that from happening, and I didn't. You know, and come to find out that that vehicle was was targeted because it was the, probably the single largest casualty producing vehicle we had because it looks like a tank. And as we were, medev- or we already medevaced uh, two guys out, and then they took the body of Cordo out. Um, and then we had to get elements to come out and tow the vehicle. And as they're towing the vehicle out, I'm literally right behind the, the MGS and it blows up a second time. So they targeted a second time. And then as we're moving out even further, luckily the, the guys were safe. They were trying to destroy that vehicle. So they, they let the, it was a command wire. So they let the first vehicle go, but they wanted that vehicle destroyed and they succeeded. And, you know, I, kind of felt, Awkward because we fielded the very first double V-hull strikers in Afghanistan. Our platoon was the first one to take an IED blast on a double V-hull. So whoever the um, the engineers at General Dynamics were, um, whoever designed that double V-hull was incredible. The problem is the, the MGS truck was a flat bottom, and that's why we lost Doug, is the the round punched directly below his seat and killed him. And if we would have taken the hit, like our other vehicle had already taken one, um, nothing would have happened. Everybody would have survived because the double V-haul displaces the energy and literally will send the energy out the back and the sides of the the vehicle instead of it punching straight through. Um, But, yeah, we, we lost Doug. And just watching, seeing how it affected the guys after that, it was just like, man, you know, they were destroyed for quite a while. And I was literally destroyed and I'm still not sleeping. So I go literally months. I was a zombie for quite a while and it became, it became problematic. And I finally, you know, I said, Hey, uh, I need to talk to the CO, you know, and I told the CO, I said, I'm not sleeping. I haven't slept in like four or five months. So they ended up sending me to Kandahar, you know, went through a neuropsychology and went to a neurologist and you know, they said, well, you've got a a moderate traumatic brain injury. It's a little bit more than just a regular concussion. You don't need to be doing anything for the next three weeks. So I'm like, okay. So um, they're like, when you get back to your base, talk to your battalion surgeon and then, um, you know, take the time downtime. I'm like, okay, I'll I'll get right on that. And of course, I just went back to the base and I said, yeah, I'm good to go, sir. All right. And he never called to double check it. So I stayed on the battle roster after that. And that's what it meant. I mean, you just don't want to be away from your guys. And then, you know, we lost another, um, you know, a couple guys, got medevaced after that. And our last one that we we got medevaced was Donnie Esslinger. And that was in September, late September. And th- that was the kind of the straw for me because, you know, Donnie was, he was a good kid, man. He, he just came back from his leave. Um, his father is Don Esslinger senior, who was the Seminole County sheriff oh. here in central Florida. And, you know, D- Donnie survived his injuries and is really doing amazing. Even though he's got, you know, a titanium skull, you know, cap, he's literally, they had to, uh, put titanium cap in his head when they got him back state side, they had to remove part of his skull because the pressures were so high, you know, when he was coming back. So when you really look at, like, all of the damage that we do physically to our bodies in combat, it's like, man. And then the deployment's over, three weeks left, we're getting ready to go home, and I get a Red Cross notice. That's when my mom died. So I lost my mom at the very end of the deployment. And then after the funeral, I'm back in Alaska. So what do I do? I go to the Class 6 store, which is like a liquor store, and I get a case of beer. And I slept for the first time. So that's how I learned to sleep again, and I self-medicated with alcohol f- for a, a solid year after that, and until I got to the point where I'm like, you know, I'm tired of the nightmares, I'm tired of the night sweats, the night terrors, I'm tired of all these emotions just sandbagging me 24 hours a day. I didn't want to stop working; I had to keep my mind occupied or busy. I hated weekends, I hated holidays, because as long as I stayed engaged in the job, I could, I could pretty much, you know, keep that stuff on the back in. March 2nd, that's when I was like 2013. I'm like, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I can't go, you know, do I ask for help? If I do, they're going to take my guns away. They're going to make me move back into the barracks. You know, I'm going to be ridiculed. All those things that we tell ourselves that negative self-talk, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but that's what I was thinking. Do I do EAP, like an employee assistance program? No, somebody's going to find out. Somebody's going to know. So it made more sense for me to check out. And if it wasn't for the kids in the apartment above me, you know, running across my ceiling, you know, I might not be here right now. And cause I'm literally looking at this rifle. And when I heard them running across my ceiling, I was like, Whoa, dumb idea. I have no desire to hurt a kid. So I, I, I kind of stopped. And then next morning I get a phone call from Ryan, who was one of my soldiers and said, Hey, Sergeant Jarvis, Corey Smathers shot and killed himself last night. And Corey was a 22 year old dad and husband that just came I just came out of his platoon. He was a good kid, and we lost him. So that week, uh, preparing for the memorial service and seeing how it impacted the guys, I was like, "This can't be my option. I can't do this." So I continued to self-medicate, and the army, you know, ended up medically retiring me off active duty September 11th of 2014. And then I started the transition journey. You know, in the first couple of days, it's like you're on this high. And it's like, hey, I'm free, you know. And then all of a sudden, reality starts hitting in again. Nightmares didn't go away. The, the night sweats didn't stop. You know, all the negative emotions didn't go away. And then, you know, I find myself, man, I've got to fix this. I got to do something. So I ended up, you know, I ended up meeting my wife and we got married and she, you know, went back into law enforcement. So I worked for the sheriff's office again. I put that uniform on for another two years and I kind of felt normal again. I didn't know why until getting into all of the stuff that we're learning now about PTSD, you know, uh, but when I stopped working at the sheriff's office is when everything came back and it came back with a vengeance and all of the need to self-medicate came back and and all the other stuff, the nightmares came back. And my wife, she never met me um, on, in military. So she asked me to, to share with her, well, what did you go through? And when I did, she looked at me and she was like, you need to go talk to somebody because I don't know how to help that. You know, I'm like, what? That's not a normal, you know, course of events. Of course it's normal. It's what we go through. And then I went down the VA rabbit hole and went and talked to the VA. And, you know, of course, the the very first thing that the VA wants to do is write you a prescription. Here's, here's some medication. And then they send you into talk therapy. And that just started the journey. And, you know, my experience with the VA, I mean, I know they're overworked, but a lot of that's self-inflicted. Um, I went through the exposure therapy, which is like talking about the event over and over. And then all of a sudden, my wife's like, you're getting worse, you know, because it's literally like pulling a tourniquet off of everything that you've been bearing for so long. And you feel the physiology of all those experiences and emotions and just craziness. And after the second appointment with them, they ended up canceling my third one. And then I couldn't get in for four more weeks. And then I went back after that and then they canceled another one and I couldn't get in for eight more weeks. And I'm like, okay, prolonged exposure. You're talking about a single event, 12 weeks worth of therapy. I got a lot more than one event that I need to work on. And at this pace, it's going to be forever. And I'm not feeling any better. So I started looking for other, other, th- other options and other solutions. And, you know, and then I, you know, I find myself out in New Mexico and, you know, they, they talked me into being a uh, test case for, uh, it's another memory reconsolidation process. And that's where my paradigm changed because I was able to tell my story that I couldn't tell before. Like this story I told you, there's no way uh-huh. I would have been, you know, 30 seconds into it. I'd have been a wreck, uh-huh. you know, but I can I can, I can, I can tell the story. I don't have all those emotions. And then I'm like, why is this not everywhere? So we started the nonprofit. Our mission was to stand in the gap. You know, how do we provide services? Cause if I, if I fell through the cracks, I know thousands and thousands of other veterans are falling through the cracks and you know, we went on the mission. We, we were raising money, trying to get therapists trained to do these processes. And we were running into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And it was a conversation that I had with a clinical psychologist with a VA. I, I kind of spoke at an event. Of course, she had to put her, her academic two cents into, you know, saying that there's this no way this exists. You're, you're, it doesn't know. Prolonged exposure is the best thing since sliced bread. It's it's gold seal standard for the VA. And I asked her, I said, you ever been on the receiving end of prolonged exposure? And she said, well, no, I haven't. I said, have you ever been traumatized where you've had those emotions? And she 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 couldn't. She didn't. She goes, yeah, but the research. And, I'm, and I said, well, I'm telling you right now, the research is wrong. I said, I have run into veteran after veteran after veteran who are just as traumatized by the therapy that they don't want to go to therapy. You know, And for me, this is extremely personal because I had a, a buddy of mine that I deployed with um, we weren't in the same platoon, but we were in the same battalion and we worked together up in the three shop afterwards a week ago, um, maybe a little bit over a week on the 11th of May. I got noticed that he died by suicide. The year prior to that, I'm trying to connect with him and get him connected with somebody that can help him. And he was like, well, I'm, I'm going through counseling with a VA, you know, and now he's gone. Three kids are now without a dad. So we, you know, we are now doing that, that, psychologist actually, I was trying to sponsor her to get trained in that process. I'm like, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for your hotel. I'll pay for your meals. You'll get continuing ed credits. She's like, I in good conscience could never do anything. That's not evidence-based. There's a big study going on at Walter Reed that's supposed to publish September. And my worry is the VA will bury it huh. because somebody will try to protect a reputation. You know, I've lost too many buddies. Our our unit, we, we lost two guys. Um, in afghanistan to combat injuries and my company which is just about a hundred people we've lost five coming home the battalion we're at 10 for the battalion you know we're losing more guys at home to our own hand than we're losing on the battlefield
0: so let me let me ask you if it's okay Dan, sure. you know a couple of things first of all it's always i'll get emotional but just hearing your story but and I, I don't even feel right getting emotional. I just I, I you know um, I I remember when I took I took the test uh, when I was younger. I took the ASVAB. Is that how you say it? Yeah. And my mom got the results in the mail before I did. And I came home and did the letter on the table, and it said it made me think of your mom. And my mom wrote on there over my dead body, right? <laughs> and and I said, well, because I, I was going to go to pay for college. I've always had this heart. I I feel like I wanted to be in the military, right? And um, for whatever reason, I wasn't. I didn't go, right? But when I hear these stories of you and others, and I have some in my family, I'm just, you know, your service, but just to hear, you know, a lot of guys can't tell the story because it's too hard, right? My, 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 my uncle was a Marine in Vietnam. My, my father-in-law is a Vietnam veteran. And, you know, so to be able to be even to be able to articulate it, I think, well, for a lot of people is powerful to hear it because so many just aren't even able to tell the story. Right. And, and just, I'm sure you left a lot of the the details out, but when I'm I'm listening to you and I'm just a couple of things, I want to just ask you to get us started, but, you know, um, what was that? You said that was you know where your your paradigm shifted. I remember you know I, I would have said too when they said, well, there's no evidence to support that, right? <laughs> I would probably have said I'm am standing here in front of you, you know, right? I remember my dad had a, was having a side effect to a medication they put him on, and he went in to talk to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, that side effect doesn't have any evidence to say that happens. He was losing his memory on a drug. He goes well, I'm your evidence, right? Like it's right in front of me, right? And I, when we get so, you know, from pharmaceuticals and everything, I know we're talking a little bit before, I get so frustrated because they miss what's right in front of them, right? The person in front of them that's struggling, and we get so tied up in, you know, the words and language and evidence-based and this kind of stuff, and we miss the person, right? Treat the patient, right? Take care of the person in front of you. And so what was that paradigm shift that you said you experienced when you were in New Mexico, I believe it was, right? Like what, from what model to what model?
2: So I, you know, I, I'll be straight honest. Yeah. I work law enforcement, I work military, but the worst stuff was when I was eleven. Mm. All right So I, I was very familiar with what trauma felt like. And when I was able to tell that story and when when I experienced the the nightmare stopping, mm. when I experienced going back to a normal sleep cycle, like that's that was my paradigm. you know, but just the feeling because you know, when I went through that process, it was about 45 minutes. You know, the, and that
0: So a different technique of dealing with this that wasn't drugs and re exactly, And, you know, we won't have to go into deals, but a, a different model of care, mm-hmm. right? You know, so me being a chiropractor is kind of like somebody can come to me with a bunch of drugs. And we have a different approach. It doesn't require drugs. They start getting better. They go, I did not even know it's possible because all I've ever been told was these things, talk therapy, RE, and, and drugs, right. right? And you went through a 45-minute scenario. Not that it happens every time for every person that way, but in your story, that's what happened. And you felt a difference immediately, started experiencing the benefits of that, and you couldn't deny it.
2: You can't deny it. Yeah. You know, and then I came back here to Orlando, and I, I work with Cynthia Knowles out of First Orlando and First Orlando Counseling. And I said, Cynthia, we are going to clear two weeks. I'm coming in here. I'm getting rid of everything. And then like literally, like two sessions later, I'm like, ah, I don't have anything left. So I'm <laughs> going to have to cancel my appointments. It was crazy. This is you coming through the story you just told, and then some, and then some,
0: and 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 for all intents and purposes, a couple two three visits. Not to oversimplify this, but this is your story. A, a, a life-changing, nothing short of...
2: It's literally like your brain gets rewired. Okay. All right. So the way I explain trauma, and, and this is... We get a lot of people say, well, does this stuff work for civilians? Because I, I see you as a military vet, and your stuff's got to be horrible.
0: Yeah, I hear your big... You know, I hear the story, and I go, my goodness, of exactly. course. You but know. the
2: thing is, trauma has zero to do with what you see and everything to do with what you feel, all right? So it's got absolutely nothing about the visual. It's the emotional attachment to it. And when you don't process so that... So we all
0: think, I saw the dead body. I had to haul my... Go- you know, whatever. That's...
2: If you're rating it on fear, terror, and helplessness, if you're a, a 10 on a 0 to 10 scale and you were in a traffic crash with fatalities, there's no difference between that and me stepping on a pressure plate, detonating an IED where I almost died. You were in a situation where somebody did die or almost died. I was in a situation where I almost died. There's no difference. All right. You know, look at the kids, you know, we've we've done some work down in, in Parkland. You know, look at the kids from Marjorie Stone and Douglas. For about 45 minutes, those kids were in a war zone here in the United States. No difference. All right. Same thing. All right. One of the worst traumatic events that I've ever heard from a, a person that we'd worked with, she was a civilian. She wasn't military. She was married to a cop. She was raped and tortured for eight years. I mean, mm-hmm. for eight hours one night. So an eight-hour event where she thought she was going to die. And she relived that nightmare for 16 years. And then she finally reached out to a buddy of hers who was an Army vet that I know. And he's like, hey, do you have anybody in Knoxville? I said, well, I don't, but you know, I'm visiting. Let's connect her. And then Karen ended up connecting with us. And she came to my uncle's house. I ran her through the process. And in an hour, she cleared two traumatic events and left smiling and literally reset her autonomic nervous system, whatever you want to call it. Her whole body got reset. She said she went home, slept 13 hours. You know, you get that REM sleep cycle. That's where all of the magic happens. Then the brain does what it's supposed to do. Heals. So,
0: so Dan, when I think about this, and, and and I'm just loving, not loving, I mean, it's intense stories, but I mean, I just, because when you get to talk to the person that's doing an experience, and right, nobody can take away your testimony, right? Nobody can take away what your experience has been. But the hope that comes with it, and I think the frustration that, that I've had Never going through what you have, but the the when when you just apply, you know, um, re-exposure and, and or I guess my one that I really triggers me is you can't drug that away. No. And this is where we've gotten so off base in, you know, psychiatry or treatment of mostly treatment of PTSD by and large, right? Or stress, anxiety, depression, all those things. Kind of get grouped mental health, if you will, right? It's just literally almost entirely. Maybe we'll throw in some talk therapy, but for sure we're going to drug you, right. and that does not give you the opportunity for your physiology or your brain to rewire itself. It's it's just it just simply doesn't any more than the booze did for the year trying to go to sleep, right? Yep. You might you might think, I'm sure you had those nights. Wow, well, I slept great tonight. No, I was loaded and I passed out, and you know right. didn't have a nightmare. Maybe, but but that was nobody was getting better, right? And so. For our listeners, and maybe you can do it a better job articulating them than me, when you've seen so many of your friends, and, and whether it's a military or, or, you know, the um, police, you know, law enforcement, that have fallen into that trap, I'll just call it a trap, right, of, of, of medic- medicating it, even if it's through pharma, right, um, to know that there's another way, right? I mean, I think, and this is maybe an oversimplification again, what do you have to lose? Right. And I don't mean to, over, you know, Right. Sit down with somebody that knows what they're doing that can walk you through some traumas, and maybe it might take you four sessions (laughs) or whatever, right? And then, of course, get your lifestyle and, you know, and together and other support systems and all the other things that are ancillary to that, right? But even to hear, because it's almost um, taboo to even tell somebody they can heal from trauma, right? I mean, some people, you can never heal from it. Bullshit. I mean, excuse me, right? I'm sitting, right. I'm looking to a guy who told me he did. So if that's not true, then you're a liar yeah. and you're not a liar and nor are all your friends and the people you've worked with and cared for, right? The other side is closer to a lie, which is to say, you're going to have to suffer, suffer with this for the rest of your life. You can't heal. That'd be like you breaking your arm, not to oversimplify and say, well, sorry, you're screwed. Yeah. Broken arm for the rest of your life. What are you going to do? Here's some dope so you don't feel your broken arm. Exactly. That'd be ridiculous. Right? But it takes somebody to say, hey, let's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set it, <laughs> It'll let it rest for a bit, and by golly, the body's going to rewire that, or in this case, right, remold the bone together. The brain, the capacity of the nerve system to adapt and to heal and to reorganize is way more than we even give, but we don't even give it a chance because right. we medicate it you know, for the most part. So what do you say to that person? Because I'm sure you've had these conversations, unfortunately, many times, right, with people like that gal you were talking about that just couldn't
2: get her brain to think that way. Well, I actually, it's funny you mentioned. I actually had a conversation with my VA psychiatrist. I, asked, I said, I want to be reevaluated for PTSD.
0: Okay. It's after you are been well and healed. After I'm well and healed, like, yeah.
2: I want to get reevaluated. And he was like, Why? What's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Opposite. Nothing's wrong. I want to get reevaluated because I want my 50% rating for PTSD to go to zero because I don't have it anymore.
0: And that's an interesting point. And I don't know if this is true, but I know in my world of like uh, disability and stuff. So you literally, that statement was also going to probably cost you some money.
2: That statement, if I had lost that v, that diagnosis and they took that fifty percent away, would have taken me from a hundred percent permanent total to about ninety, which is about eighteen hundred dollars a month.
0: Lower, lower. Yeah. So you knew going in there, this was going to be, you know, a financial hit. You know, you didn't have to do that. You could have wrote it right. out.
2: Yeah. But I don't want to be on the front lines saying we're we're defeating PTSD, and then somebody come back and say, well, you're getting paid for it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did my due diligence. I told the VA, and the words that came out of the psychiatrist's mouth just kind of floored me. He goes, "Well, first of all, I've never had anybody ask for that ever." And then he goes, "You can't cure PTSD. Yeah. You're going to He's his words, you're going to have it the rest of your life. You need to treat it with medication and therapy." And then I says, and then I said, "Well, have you ever heard of this organization?" And then we had a conversation about the research that's going on. So then the next appointment I go with him, I hand him all the research, the printed published research. And then the next, conversa- next conversation, you know, because you have to go like every four months, you know, and I'm like, why are you guys, why is this relationship even, I'm trying to break up with you. Do you not understand that? <laughs> you know, but the VA says, you got to do these appointments. You got to do these appointments, but they won't reevaluate me. They will not reevaluate me. They literally never me. did. No. So, and then I've talked with some yeah. VA psychologists they are like, well, the VA doesn't operate that way. The only way they'll ever drop a PTSD rating is if there's fraud. I'm like, well, I told them, so... No fraud here. You yeah. Know? But yeah, it's like, you know, talking about what do you have to lose. That's one of the things I say, you know, you got forty-five minutes, you'll know, you'll feel it. And all you have to lose is a little bit of time and possibly a label.
1: Dan, talk real quick to the listener that's out there there. You know, Ben kind of alluded to it to earlier. It's more than just military, but you have seen the whole spectrum of what people are dealing with. So why don't you just throw some things out there and you know maybe a listener can grab on and say, yep, got one of those.
2: So we, being that we're very active in social media, we, we do a lot of connection. I'll speak wherever I can. And that civilian population always comes up and says, well, this can this work with this? Can this work with that? And I'm like, it's got nothing to do with what you saw. It's got everything to do with your feelings. If Can you feel it right now? Do you feel it? Yes, it'll work. All right. Um, so we've had lots of civilians reaching out and it's kind of like, it's almost like you, you literally have this superpower, right? And you're not going to withhold it from somebody. So we've done a lot of work with civilians. And so, I mean, anything from car crashes hmm. to divorces, um, you know, even in cases of acute stress, we had a police officer up in Tennessee was involved with a shooting. Hmm. And our coach now, the Karen, the young lady who had been tortured for eight hours, has now worked since July. She's worked with 65 people. Oh, and one of them was a police officer that was just involved in a shooting, and now he's back to work. I had a security guard reach out say, "Hey, I need. I, I just witnessed a guy get shot six times by an AR-15 from a cop outside of an emergency room, you know." And literally, and that was like two or three days prior, and he was scared because he's a recovered alcoholic. And literally, in thirty-five, forty minutes, we reset, we disconnected neurologically the emotions, and now he's back to being normal again. It's crazy when you when you see how the brain functions, you know, because all of these emotions stay in the amygdala, all right? So that's the base, you know, survival part of the brain, fight or flight, you fight or flight and procreation. So you experience an event, the light switch goes on, you go into fight or flight for survival. That's the way we were created. That's how we survive. People that have the PTSD, that light switch never turns back Yeah, it's back good off. short
0: term, save your life. But it, living in it, kill you. Kill you, yeah.
2: right? Because then you're looking at the, the high levels of cortisol, the yeah. adrenal fatigue, and all the other stuff that comes along with it, you know, all of the disease that comes from it. You pick your cancer, high yeah. blood pressure, strokes, heart attacks, you know, there's a reason they yeah. pay law enforcement higher retirement rates mm. because they don't live as long to collect mm. it, you know, because you're in a career which is why I felt normal as a deputy sheriff again. Mm. I'm in fight or flight every day that I'm working. It works here. It works. works. My brain is now operating the way it's supposed to. That's why Mm. they want soldiers always want to go back to Afghanistan or Iraq because they feel normal in that environment because their brain is operating in the fight or flight. So when you're able to literally disconnect those neurological connections and then that emotion leaves the memory which is where I can talk about the story you still remember it, it I still it's still real it. it's my history it's
0: that it's that connection to the emotion of it that was I don't this is probably the wrong word to use the right word where you're you're it's stuck it's it, it, it's you know it's married you can't divorce yep. it and so you're whenever you're thinking about it you're having the same emotion you're screwed you yep. know you're going to you know, have all the horrible flashbacks or whatever the terms are.
2: Well, uh, even, even when you self-medicate, like me, I self-medicated. So I never hit my REM sleep cycle. Yeah. It's the REM sleep cycle where the brain processes out all those emotions.
0: People, that is a, such a great point. I remember I had a nurse that was a patient, she was a sleep study nurse, and we were going through some stuff, and, and she was learning in our office. We teach on some of this stuff, not to the level you, but you know, just help people understand. She goes, I was talking about antidepressant medication, and, and that you never hit REM on those medications. And she goes, that's why? I see whenever people come in on sleep studies that are on those drugs, they don't hit REM. Mm-hmm. You're not hitting healing sleep. So even though your eyes closed and you might be snoring, you're not in healing sleep. Correct. Right. You know, And I mean, the oversimplification, but you just go, of course, any of it would be messed up. Dude, look how we are when we miss one night of sleep. When you were talking about not sleeping for four months, I thought, my gosh, I mean, you look how bad we are when we're, we're a little hungry and we just get, don't get some sleep tonight. We're, we're going to you know, hurt somebody. Right. And let them one living that. So people don't realize they go, no, I'm taking my drug or I'm taking my Lunesta or I'm taking my, you know, Zoloft or whatever. I think I'm doing better, but it is, it is, it is as bad, you know, it's like painting your car. That's rusty thinking it's going to be better, you know, right. Or, or, you know, the problem is still there. And I think that's because none of those can disconnect that, 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 that memory, right. None of those right. can do that. And so I, I guess, Dan, I want, I want our listeners to know a couple things, but this isn't, I want to, I don't want to say this right. Cause you probably get accused of it, right. I bet when you do work like this, right. Too good to be true. Yep. Uh, can't be that easy. Yep. Uh, false hope, yep. uh, you know, right? Uh, I, it's the same things I hear, right? People come in on all these drugs and they go, "You're you're gonna, you know, you're gonna push on my back and it's gonna go." I said, "Listen, the body's designed to heal, right? The brain's designed to heal, right? Our body wants to process trauma, but when we believe the narrative that it can't, right? When we don't believe we can get well, when we don't believe we can heal, um, why even try? I, I was reading this book the other day and it was talking about in a different term, more of a, of more of a spiritual term, or t- from a faith perspective, it was saying, if we don't believe we can you know, be helpful to people and be Christ-like was this example, if we don't even believe it, we won't even try. Right. And that's the great lie. If, you don't, if I got a guy or a gal or somebody in front of me that doesn't believe they can heal, it's the old Henry Ford or whatever. You think
2: you can or can't, you're right.
0: And, and so this, the, the medical model doesn't allow you to be well. You said it with the high level of your psychiatrist sitting there saying you can't heal from this. If you find a person that says you can't heal, find another person. Right. Not because you're selling false hope. You're not a false hope dealer, right? And so I want somebody, if, if, if you're listening to this, um, number one, I'm looking at your shirt and stuff. How do they contact you, you know, what, what is this? I know there's people listening that have either experienced the trauma themselves. Some of the examples you're talking about, or maybe military trauma, they got their, their brother came back and they're worried about him. He's locked in the basement drinking himself, you know, right. All those stories. How do they reach out to you? Or what do we do? What do we,
2: so we have a website, www.thenumber22zero.org. Uh, they can find us at twenty two zero on Facebook. Um, haven't quite figured out Instagram yet. Is
0: the 22 what I, what I think it is referencing?
2: Twenty two is referencing the number of veterans who die by suicide every day on average. And the reality is it's higher probably than. higher than that. Yeah. It, two two is too many, yeah. you know, but when you're looking at eight thousand a year, you know, we've lost more veterans to suicide since the war on terror started. Than we've lost in all of the previous wars combined. We're at over 167,000, you know, minus Civil yeah. War, maybe yeah, the, yeah. maybe Vietnam, and then the first Gulf War, second Gulf War. You know, we've lost 160,000 to suicide.
0: And unfortunately, you're gonna have to take the initiative if you're listening to this to to step outside of your paradigm, maybe, or or make the make a call, reach out. It, you know, it might not be covered by insurance. It might not be, I don't know, whatever, right? Covered by the VA or something like that, right? And maybe that will change someday in our lifetime, but. You know, it, but you're you, you imagine you tell that story about sitting in your apartment, right? Um, you may not even be sitting here. I always tell people, and they say, "Oh, it's expensive." I said, "Listen, you're
2: worth it." Yeah, exactly. Your, your life is worth it. Figure it out, right? You, you know, when you when you think about the cost, like literally, we've had people go through treatment and they get mad You're like, "What's wrong?" You know, you just did something in a couple hours that I've been in. We have one. She wrote a letter, uh, email to us, it was remarkable. She'd been in therapy for thirty years, thirty years, and finally was diagnosed with complex PTSD. And then we connected her with one of our coaches out in Phoenix, two sessions. And she now has a whole different outlook. Her paradigm has changed. You know, her, her husband is a firefighter and they've been together for a long time. And, you know, she said her husband is a man's man. And he broke down in tears after she got healthy, like got his old, his old girl back, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but if anybody contacts us through the nonprofit, um, veterans, first responders, um, corrections, dispatchers, you know, you name it. We even included medical professionals um, because of COVID yeah. and the stuff that we're seeing there. We'll work with the entire family unit to include their children. And we've got data to prove what we're doing. And I'd say right now we probably have data pre and post scores on over 550 cases, and they're all 100%. And the most remarkable study we've done is with our 66 children up in Virginia. So we trained some counselors up there, and they did the pre and post data. Um, we use the PSSI five, the Post Traumatic Stress Disorder Symptom Scale interview. Oh, you mean you don't 5. use
0: hocus pocus and guessing and, and you know nope, make numbers nope. up it there? <laughs> we
2: we we score them out um, the way anybody would score. Way they, they, yeah, the we use industry used, scores. Yeah. We use that model for us because we're a peer support group, mm-hmm. and it doesn't get into the details because we don't use content when we're working with people. And those 66 children, they scored probably 46. Anything above 40 is majorly disrupted. Three or four days a week, they're having a rough time. And between the ages of 4 and 17, and they all had PTSD, 79% of those kids were finished after one session because kids are extremely resistant. With resilient the post score. With the post score. They did one session, and they didn't need to do any more work. Uh, but the most that those kids did was three. Uh, the other four studies we've got, uh, each of them are, have over 100 in each study group, uh, one group had one that required four sessions. Everybody else is done in like three.
0: Can I? Put, I'm putting a spot here for a second. I know we're kind of winding down, but I, I just I, as I'm listening to you, I, I had a, a thought. Number one is what I've seen. I'm dad. I've got my I got kiddos, and and then what I've seen happen through this COVID stuff, right? And um, you know, a lot there not to talk about COVID entirely, but no doubt there's been some trauma. There's been some trauma on frontline people that had experienced in certain areas where they live and work. Um, I also think about the trauma our kiddos went through from schooling and everybody wearing masks around and the fear associated with you know that or the fear of thinking I'm going to be a defector to my grandma if I go right. give her a hug and all this stuff right that that I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. In I'm seeing suicide rates through the roof with kiddos yep. um, and you know these younger generations and uh, just terrible stuff right and so and and if the answer is n- is no then I totally get it but is there anything in just in just in general Dan that that you could and if, again, if the answer is no, just that's okay, you know, because I'm a firm believer in in lifestyle, right? And there's a lot of things you can do to help yourself. There's times you need an expert to help you, no doubt about it, right? Yep. Is there just, is there general things that, you know, or even maybe things to watch out for? So if I'm a dad and, man, I'm seeing my kid and I'm really concerned, first of all, it's really encouraging to hear you work with kids, right? Because yep. there's a lot of parents, even if we're okay taking dope, even though I would just suggest not, but you know, like I don't want to put my kid on drugs, right? So to know there's a, a non-pharmaceutical approach that works is just alone. Mm-hmm really helpful but what should we be l- looking for or what is there things we can even do just proactively on our own you know that focuses on resiliency or can help in a small way break up some of those patterns neurologically and if I don't want a doctor over the airwaves but is there
2: well I mean I think social media is hurting our younger okay. generation I think they're hardwiring their brains to to expect that dopamine hit when they get the notifications you um, mm-hmm you know, definitely video games. Video so games really, yeah. Oh my gosh. Some of these video games are so realistic. I literally would play a video game when I came back from Afghanistan. I'm like, dude, I feel like I'm back there. Oh. That's how realistic it is. So I, I do not, I'm not a big advocate of these first person shooter yeah. video games. Coming I,
0: from a guy that's kind of walked that walk. So right. know what You're talking about.
2: Yeah. Cause I always tell me, they say nothing like call of duty. You know, when you live call of duty, guess what? There is no respawning on the battlefield. You know, you die, you're done. Right. So Get that thought process out of your mind. You know, um, kids. You know, kids need to have an outlet. They need to be socialized. You know, you've got to get them in healthy relationships. You know, but be be on top of you know what they're what they're doing online. Mm-hmm. No, know, know who they're connecting with. You know, I I would not want my kids to be to have open, unfettered access to the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. There is so much bad stuff out there. You know, that's just the protector in me. Yeah, but. Um, But definitely, you know, if a kid is involved with a traumatic event, you got to get them sleeping. You got to get them resting.
0: So if I'm not sleeping, um, it's a good, that's a good, maybe I could say symptom, but that's a good, like, pay attention to that. We've talked some other episodes about sleeping, Um, but I'm saying here, you're listening to this and you might go, and I haven't slept good at all, right? right? Um, Or my kids don't sleep. That's a a sign that something's up, right? Is there, Dan, is there times where there's trauma that they've been through but maybe I think of myself even I've gone through some things not what you have but again like you said that's not the point but I think oh I'm fine with that I didn't that, <laughs> that well, did affect me um, and, and it, it, it does I don't want to mean it's like this like repressed crazy thing but is there stuff like that I, yeah. a person comes in and thinks I'm not really that messed up right? and, and then not that it's about pulling out all this junk but
2: yeah when, the brain is like a computer it generalizes data deletes data and then distorts it trauma it has, tends to be in the deletion and distortion mm-hmm. so it'll change what happened you know that's why some people can't remember parts of a trauma or might not remember it at all. So we do two different processes. But it could we, still be affecting
0: me. Yes. Could still be messing up my sleep. Could yep. still be making me anxious, depressed, whatever.
2: Yep. We had a we had a fire chief who went through the process who said I am totally fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm well adjusted, but I want to see what this is all about.
0: Help my maybe it'll help my guys. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and goes through it and go, and he's like I had no idea how much stuff I was carrying. He didn't realize it. So, I mean there's so many different we find like a lot of trauma too. And, and and here's the thing. If something happens to you at six years old and you're 40 and you look back and well, that's not a trauma. Mm-hmm. You know what it was to a six year old. And guess what? If it was to a six year old, the brain coded it as a traumatic event, you know, hands down. So we find, we do processes with them where we do emotions first. And then we all of a sudden they can't clear it using this process. So then we identify it as a trauma then we use a different process okay. and they're able to clear it, you know, and it's like, You know, I never realized that I worked with a gentleman the other day. He had three traumas that he had no clue were traumatic events. Okay, and so there's the model.
0: The model allows a person to walk through that. So you're able to. So if I'm not sleeping well, maybe if I find myself medicating now, maybe I'm not drinking a case of beer a night, but I'm drinking a six pack, or Mm -hmm. I'm, I maybe taking some scripts that I haven't really thought about because it takes the edge off. Are those, you know, again, just things to maybe say? What am I? What am I? What's going on here? This isn't normal, even though it's common. Even though a lot of people do it, it doesn't mean that it's normal. Those might be some other things to look at and say. I'm
2: not you need to look at what medications you're taking and do a deep dive into what the side effects are. Because if you're not hitting your REM sleep cycle, you're not going to process the emotions of that day or the week or the month or the year before that. You know, we've we've because sleep deprivation and self-medication are the two biggest inhibitors of processing trauma. If you're if you have an insomnia, hence
0: why these people, when when you know, when they probably they're probably their big I bet the most common thing I'm gonna get is, you know, thank you so much, is oh my gosh, I've never slept like that before. Exactly. Right? Because now they can finally it just makes sense, you know, physiologically now.
2: I worked with an Air Force veteran. She was on Ambien for 13 years. Which I is took, a
0: nasty drug. I yeah.
2: took it two weeks, and I thought I was going to lose my mind. Yeah. So we did one session with her. She had a high nine event, very stressful. We cleared it. She was zero, and literally went to sleep without taking her Ambien. Hit her REM sleep cycle, and now she doesn't take Ambien. Yeah. So follow the money. You know, Big Pharma is probably yeah, yeah, yeah. going to not like us too much. but people
0: yeah. People will say this to me, Dan, and I want to give you a chance. They'll say... They'll say, um, uh, my dad had had cancer, stage four cancer, give two weeks to live. We took him through a natural process and he, you know, had a miraculous healing, uh, what people would call miraculous. But they'll say, well, if it's so great, how come I haven't heard about it, right? If it's so great, why didn't my psychiatrist tell me? If if chiropractic would work, why didn't they tell me? If this, you know, technique you're talking about, if it was so great, why does the government do it? Why, do, you know, you've heard it a million times, I've right? Heard, I've heard all of it. And so when you hear that, you know, I always, I always want to tell people like, and you alluded to it, right? Well, there's a reason for that. And it's not because it doesn't work. I mean, people ask me when it comes to publishing scientific journals. We all know who runs and owns those scientific journals. It's Big Pharma. Exactly. It's who funds them. So if you think they were going to publish something that doesn't incorporate Big, Ph- Big Pharma as the solution, just wake up. I'm sorry it's that way, but that's the reality. Right. right. That doesn't mean there's not other research out there that's peer-reviewed. You're referring to it, right? Yep. It just might not be... <laughs> it's just not going to make the news. It's not going to... As, as disgusting as that is.
2: They bury peer-reviewed journals all the time.
0: What is your your challenge to people on that? Because when they say that, and I mean it lovingly, I want to say, don't let that be the reason you don't investigate this, right? right? Again, I don't want to say, what do you have to lose? Because I don't want to downplay the success of the program, right? This, is, this isn't, to me, it's not just like, I want to tell people chiropractic... Said, I want you to have a better thought than just give it a shot because you need to come in engaged, right? right? You need to come in understanding this as a reality and a possibility. So if you're coming with your arms crossed and this isn't going to work and this is stupid, yeah, still sometimes we get those results, but it's way better if with you coming in ready to, ready to you know.
2: You first got to look at it. Do you want to feel like crap the rest of your life? Do you want to not sleep? You know, w- when you do it, it's all about the framing. So if there was a way that you could feel better, sleep better, not be triggered all the time, and it didn't cost you a penny. Would it interest you? And once they say yes, then you go right into it. Um, just the just the thought of what a future looks like. And some people have been traumatized for such a long period of time. That's all they know. They don't know mm. what it looks like. So there there's an anxiety level, a fear of with well, with being well, with being well. What does what does that mean? And then there are people that benefit from it. There's a secondary benefit to trauma. You know, we run into it all the time with veterans. You know, it kind of reminds me of the joke you know, Vietnam vets having a drink at a bar. Jesus walks in and goes to put his hand on his shoulder. He says, don't touch me. I'm on disability, you know? So there's a lot of vets out there who are getting compensated and paid. And the fear is they're going to lose that benefit. And, but the reality is, you know, if you're in the younger generation or you've got a long time to go, you know, I I had the, the pleasure of meeting the World War II vet, Mel. And, you know, Mel Jenner is 98 years old. And for 70 years, he struggled. I, I... That would have been me if I didn't find one of these better ways.
0: Or or, or take the, another way out. Or I would
2: have taken the other way out. Like, you know, Steven Stoops, Sergeant Stoops from my last unit last week. You know, orphaned three kids. Well, they still have their mother. But, you know, we can't do that. We cannot be that person, right? And, and for any veteran or first responder, because here's another, here's another uh, bit of news. We lose more first responders to suicide every year in the United States than line of duty deaths. You probably don't hear that too much. Wow. Right, that's not something that's highly publicized, and the reason is it's bad for recruitment. Not only that is, it's a horrible time to be a first responder yeah. in the United States, or a cop, or a oh, exactly, I mean, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, you 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 name it, and and we don't even track the veteran cops, veteran firefighters, because I've you don't mm, know how many times mm. I've run into, you know, a lieutenant or, or a retired fire captain. Well, yeah, I've lost four of my my buddies to suicide since they left the fire department, or Kind of ironic, I just
0: heard somebody this week. I was just a patient, I was taking care of going to a funeral for one of their buddies, fire department firemen down here in central Orlando that took his life, right? And I said, Man, did you know? You know, and it's the stuff, no, I had no idea. And
2: the, the thing is, and people always use this, well, they're just a weak person. Oh. Well, I got some news for you, <laughs> I, I got some real <laughs> solid news for you. The higher rates of suicide in the military are special operations guys, they're seeing like 30% increases. In suicide. because How did this come from a drill sergeant, by uh, the way. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, I was a drill sergeant too. I I kicked doors in. I was on yeah. the I was on the two way ranges where the bullets yeah. are coming back. So the we're losing, and it's not just the private or the UPFC.
0: The kid that didn't go want to go to military went in there and, and yeah, got messed up.
2: We're losing yeah. two star generals. We're losing admirals. We're losing colonels and captains and and people of all ranks, sergeant majors, first sergeants. You know, it, it's not just somebody who's got some weak minds it's somebody that gets sick and tired of being sick and tired
0: and if this stuff wouldn't work you wouldn't be on the show you wouldn't put yourself out there you know you know you know false hope right yep. and, and you wouldn't put yourself out there for your brothers and sisters in in, in the
2: field right um, you wouldn't do that The good thing is we have active first responders police officers that are using our processes as frontline tools right now out in Salt Lake City Police Department there's about eight of them out there and it's literally changing the cultures of their department. They're taking officers who are actively suicidal and shutting that off. And um, we're gonna be going out there in August and training a pretty large group. And once once we get into that world, you know, once they it it's accepted, because here here's a fact. Might not get the
0: military, who knows? They might be the late adopters.
2: They may be. The VA will be the me too last on board. But (laughs) when the police departments and the fire departments realize, well, wait a minute, my guys are now healthy. They're not triggering, you know, they're interacting better with the public what does that look like for this country so i'm confident in the first responder world we're going to make a huge impact and that's going to start the ball rolling that won't be able to stop so you're a nonprofit
0: people can donate to you Yes. Is that true? So if they go to that same website, that's a way to give, their way to give there? Correct. Okay, because I'm sure there's people that, you know, either they don't maybe feel like they need this, thankfully, or something, but they want to support it because of, every, you know, they believe in, in what you're talking about. Is there stories there and stuff? Is there some of the testimonials on there they can see and yep. learn about? And
2: We actually have testimonials on the site. We also do a podcast called Resiliency Radio where Beautiful. we share some of the stories. So they can, that's on the website, so they can go right there and hear some of the stories. Um, we're, we're predominantly peer support. We, we have... Uh, probably about 110 nationally trained right now. We're like in, tw- I think we're in 20 states. Is
0: there people, that brings up the light, maybe last question. If somebody's listening to this going, man, I mean, I've been in traditional psychology, psychiatry, I've been doing talk therapy, it's not my thing. I want to maybe become a coach. Is
2: that the term, a coach? A co- okay, okay.
0: I want to look into maybe possibility of that. Is that something that they can reach out to you for as well? Is that through you? They,
2: they can participate in the training. If they're a veteran yeah. oh. that's a licensed counselor or a former first responder, those are the ones we like to scholarship. We'll do fundraising so that because they understand the culture and they're really good. Um, Dr. Janelle Royster, she's on my board. Uh, she's literally, since January of 2020, she's already at like 300 people wow. that had PTSD that no longer have it. So those are our force multipliers. We want those veteran uh, counselors. We want those former first responder counselors because those are the ones that the cops and the firefighters and the veterans want to go talk to. So if, if you're out there and you meet that criteria, uh, we have scholarship opportunities right now. Um, we'll train you, and then you can join our tribe and literally change the world. Every time I hear you say, and, and even though I, I couldn't agree more with everything
0: that you're saying, it's just every time I hear somebody say, you know, you know hear you say it, 300 people, they have PSD, and they no longer do. You know, it's like it's like there's a there's like a check in your brain, right? Because you just don't hear that narrative being told, right? Um, and it's so it's so I've said this before. It's weird how fast we will buy into diagnosis, right? right? It's just we, it's just we'll, we'll come into agreement so quickly with a label. Not generally, but I mean, not hopefully not us, but people in general. They just want to know what do I have, All right? right. What do I have? Give me a label. But my and that's why I struggle to give it. Like when you said, um, you know, the only thing you're at risk of losing is a label. When, but to take that away after that is like moving mountains, it seems like, for people. And I'm, I'm, it's, just, it's just so interesting to me. We're so fast. I'm depressed. I've got to say, and I have it forever. Like, well, you didn't have it when you were 2 or 4 or 6 or 8 or 12 or 22 or whatever that was, right? So it, the great news is, is your body is resilient. It does have a, a natural inborn resiliency, innate intelligence, you know, designed to heal. Whatever you want to call that. The thing that happens when you cut your arm and it heals. Mm-hmm. It happens to your brain, too. Thank God, neuroplasticity. I mean, thank God your brain does this. If does isn't, we wouldn't be talking about this. We'd be Good. taking dope and saying it's the best we can do. Yep. But the body can, and the body can adapt. And so if you're listening to this and you heard Dan's story and it it, um, it either triggered you or it just inspired you, hopefully it would be a better one, and you want to reach out, that'll be on our, our notes there. And, um, and good news is this is just growing. And so there's, and do they even do virtual? Can you even do virtual? Is that part of the world?
2: 95% of the work we do is virtual.
0: So really there's nobody listening to this. If you're struggling, hurting, your brother-in-law's struggling, your dad from Vietnam, whatever, right? There's probably a way they can get a visit done, right?
2: They can do it by Zoom, FaceTime, Facebook, video messenger. As long as we can see them, we can do it. Beautiful.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe. To learn more about Dr. Ben's work, visit AchieveWellness.clinic.